0: We, you know, Spirit Rock, uh, likes through Jack likes to trace its lineage back through uh, the Thai forest tradition. Is that volume good? Okay. And it's just wonderful that that uh, it's come to us this way. On the other hand, there's some kind, there's some situations that provide some confusion. And perhaps you've experienced some of it too. I was in a in a group listening to some teachings by a uh, monastic recently. And he was talking about the Buddha's death and the accounts of the the account of the Buddha's death in the uh, in the suttas and the scriptures. Um, and in that account, the Buddha is surrounded by a number of his Closest disciples, his cousin Anuruddha, I guess his attendant Ananda, who was also a cousin. It was a family affair. And in the description, the Buddha spoke his last words, which were something to the effect of everything is impermanent. Um, get on with it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. And then
0: <laughs> and then he closed his eyes according to the scriptural account and entered into the first jhana and to the second to the third up to the eighth jhana. I guess he paused there and then he went back down to the first jhana and then he went up to the fourth jhana and then he died. And so I raised my hand. I said, "How how do we know this?" <laughs> You know, and, and the response was, well, Anuruddha could read minds. And I sort of thought, well, um, okay. It was his account. There are a lot of metaphysical elements that come to us with the Buddhist teachings as they, as they come to us from Asia. And some, some of those can be uh, tough for those of us who are conditioned by certainly a scientific approach to the world. The Buddha told his, his monks and nuns that when they were teaching, they were to teach in the vernacular of the people to whom they were speaking. And when I first read that in the scriptures, I thought, well, that makes sense. You speak in the language of the people you're talking to. But over time, I've come to think that he, mean, he meant even, even more. The vernacular includes the entire tradition of, of the conditioning tradition of, of the, uh, the audience. And so one of the things that I've been doing in, in, and my group in Davis has been doing has been working to sort of strip the Indian or the Asian metaphysics from the teachings and to see where that where that takes us um, because sometimes that causes confusion i don't know about you but you know the notion of multiple lives and reincarnation over you know uh, uncounted eons is something that i acknowledge is in the tradition but it's sort of doesn't It's not uh, in accord with my understanding of things. Um, You know, that kind of rebirth and the karma that that, uh, it bears fruit in multiple lifetimes. Um, Some people like the notion of multiple lives. Some people don't. Some people find it comforting. Some people don't. But for a lot of us, um, it's strange, and sometimes not held uh, entirely comfortably. Um, People point, and and I'm not entirely sure that that the Buddha necessarily adhered to those notions. there's a place in the suttas that I came across where he was talking with Anuruddha. Supposedly, the guy could read his mind. <laughs> it, that's not what it said in, the, in, uh, in that particular sutta. It just described the, the process. But he says, what do you think, Anuruddha? What purpose does the Tathagata see that when a disciple has died, he declares his reappearance thus. The Tathagata is the term that the Buddha used to refer to himself. And it's translated sort of as thus gone, which is helpful.
1: <laughs>
0: or, or, or not. So what, what do you think, Anarudha? What purpose does the Tathagata see that when a, a disciple has died, he declares his reappearance thus? So-and-so has reappeared in such-and-such a place, and -and so-and-so has reappeared in such-and-such a place. Venerable Sir, our teachings are rooted in the Blessed One, guided by the Blessed One. Have the Blessed One as their resort. It would be good if the Blessed One would explain the meaning of these words. Anuruddha, it's not for the purpose of scheming to deceive people, or for the purpose of flattering people, or for the purpose of gain, honor or renown, or with the thought, let people know me to be thus, that when a disciple has died, the Tathagata declares his reappearance thus, so-and-so has reappeared in such-and-such a place, and -and so-and-so has reappeared in such-and-such a place. Rather, he says, it is because there are faithful clansmen inspired and gladdened by what is lofty, who, when they hear that, direct their minds to such a state and that leads to their welfare and happiness for a long time.
1: Mm-hmm. That's A little spin doctor. <laughs> you know,
0: I, I um, am increasingly over, over, over time um, coming to realize that the, uh, the scriptures mm, are in some ways the result of a 2,500-year telephone. game of telephone.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know, you, you, if you ever play that game, somebody at one end starts with a little phrase or a little story and they whisper into the ear of the next person to the next to the next to the next. And then when it comes out at the end, people sort of wonder how it got there. And there, there certainly was at the time this notion of rebirth, multiple births, reincarnation, that kind of thing. It, it was apparently, as my understanding is, that it was only a couple of hundred years old at the time the Buddha showed up, but it had, it had already taken hold and there, it was pretty generally uh, acknowledged to be the way things were, certainly in the, Bra- the Brahmanical spiritual tradition of the time. Um, And there's notions of karma that, if it doesn't play out in this lifetime, will play out in multiple lifetimes. Actually, for the Buddha, the word karma meant specifically intention. And the fruit of karma, there was a different word for that. He used the word vipaka. And so if someone... uh, died before the fruits could vest, I guess, then the theory was it would show up again in some later lifetime. That's fairly commonly acknowledged. My wife, who some of you know, uh, has, who's been ill for some time and um, has written a book about it, gets emails from people frequently saying things like I must have done something horrible in some past life to be suffering this way and how people like to have some sense of justice. It's interesting, we, we work to teach our children, you know, they, it's not fair and we say, well, you know, how, would, how would anybody not said to a child, you know, life is not fair? but we but we've got that fairness thing in us so you know even though we say that we still sort of hope for justice you know there should be justice and of course if it doesn't show up well maybe it will show up in some future thing Um, there are a lot of things a lot of these metaphysical elements that uh, show up um, not just in the scriptures there's I'm sure that you've heard. You're familiar with the notion about the oneness of all things. We are the wave and the ocean. We are just a part of the entire, you know, whatever. Um, now that's actually interestingly not doesn't show up in the in the scriptures themselves, in the in the uh, the teachings of the Buddha, but they sort of creep in because there's no real truth in labeling and spiritual. Um, teaching you know this one this teaching is 40% buddha dharma 30% christian mysticism 10% eclectic and 5% bullshit i mean nobody <laughs> just made it up as as we go along and this metaphysical the, the, the metaphysics that comes with the dharma can be confusing in some ways i listened to Bhikkhu bodhi recently describe um, the purposes of practice, and he, he laid out uh, two different paths. One is, you want to cultivate good karma so that your next rebirth will be good. You know. um, and then, of course, you want to cultivate the ending of karma, the ending of intention, the ending in liberation, And it's not entirely clear um, whether you should be practicing for no rebirth or for a good rebirth. (laughs) You know, it's worth a chuckle. but But the metaphysics itself is not always something that we're comfortable with. I don't know how you guys hold it, but, you know, for a time I thought, well, I guess if the Buddha says... Rebirth, well, then, you know I'll trust the map maker you know if you, I haven't been to Australia, but I think it's probably there, so I look at the maps and or Alice Springs in Australia. I know it's i, I feel pretty comfortable it's there. the map makers you know. but but i've I've recently um, been f- looking at the Dharma in a way that uh, it tries to strip all of this metaphysics out um, because it just it it's, it's just not comfortable for me. Uh, you know, as as for those of us who have been cultured in a in a scientific culture, the basic notion is we should see for ourselves. And of course, Ahipasiko, as the Buddha said, come see for yourself. He's pointing at some of these experiences. And even though I don't, I, I, I didn't take enough math to be able to figure out just quite what's happening in a black hole, <laughs> okay. um, I guess some people have got the clue. And I think, I think that if I actually did take that math, I probably could figure it out. There are a lot of people who did and they are checking each other's work. So I feel a little bit of like, well, I could know that if I'd done that. So it's... But what's interesting to discover when you, when, when you start stripping away some of these things is that the Dharma is not, the Buddha's the Dharma doesn't depend on metaphysics. You know, It doesn't really depend. That doesn't mean that there aren't people who won't tell you that if you don't believe in reincarnation, you can't be a Buddhist. There, there are people who will tell you that. Um, and there are people who will tell you that if it's not concentration practice, it's not Buddhist meditation. And then you'll, there are people who will tell you that if it's not mindfulness practice, it's not Buddhist meditation. So people have their own, their own takes. <laughs> But the Buddha Dharma, the Buddha Dharma itself um, works just as well with mysticism as it does with science, because it's really not focused on any theory about how things are. You know, there's a, there's a. Um, I was looking for something else in here this morning and came across this phrase. The, the teachings special to the Buddha, suffering, its origin, cessation, and the path. It's the Four Noble Truths are the teachings that are uh, special to the Buddhas. And the, and it doesn't depend on... And these, these are... Um, Things that arise within each of us, and we can check within each of us. Um, it's, it's actually, as, as I understand it, it's, it's uh, a single insight. You know, the insight that the Buddha had on the night of his awakening was one insight. It spread over four truths, but that's like you know, four truths is like saying, well, this this is a pen. It's black. It's long. It uses ink. It's all the same. <coughs> Thing, but we're using we're we're using many different. It's it's round. No. Uh, they aren't separate. They're all integrated. If you understood the nature of dukkha fully, you would also understand the conditions that give rise to it, its origin. And knowing that fully, you could certainly. Not take it up no. the cessation the third truth of the cessation of suffering would be would be understandable in the same way that under that, that recognizing uh, the dissatisfaction itself is it would all just be and of course the path it's an eightfold path, but those aren't separate elements <coughs> either they're all integrated it's a path and it's and it's it's a path but it's also it's the path that is walked by one who is fully awake you know the eight elements of the path um, begin with understanding things as they are through, would if you understood clearly uh, And classically, it's understanding suffering in its origin, it's understanding the Four Noble Truths uh, and Anicca and Anatta. From correct understanding, skillful intention would arise, and that would be um, intentions that do do not enhance suffering. what skillful means in this context, skillful understanding, or right view means the view that does not make things worse. And then there are the sila elements speech, right speech, right action, right livelihood. So these are behaviors that do not make things worse, that do not enhance suffering. And the meditation portions, effort, since the general tendency is to. Chase after what we want, thinking that's going to make us happy. Isn't that sort of how we work? <laughs> we're, we're slow learners. A um, you know, so right effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And some people will, and this is my take, some people will separate out one of these elements and make it the element. So they're, you know concentration is separate from mindfulness but really Achan Cha who was Jack's teacher used to used to say this is meditation this is concentration this is mindfulness both aspects of the same thing but I think all eight elements are aspects of the same thing Um, and the Buddha's teaching is about is about dukkha, and about anicca and anatta. I'd like to talk a little bit about, about those things because those elements don't depend on metaphysics. It doesn't depend. I remember going to, uh, I may have told this story once before because it still hangs out there in the back of my mind, where I went to uh, the supermarket checkout and there was a, a young lady who was, I, I live in Davis, and so there are a lot of students. So I, I, I in my mind, I identified her as a student. And the, the the checkout stand, they say things like, "How are you doing today?" Right? And I for for years that irritated me because they didn't really mean it; they just said it. And so I worked for a long time trying to come up with a response that I felt comfortable with, you know. Sylvia suggested, uh, just say, I couldn't be better. Because if I could, I would. Um, On this particular day, she asked how I was doing. And so I was trying something new. So I said, wow, things are looking up. And she said, oh, good. You're not one of those end of the world types. I said, no, no, no. She said, good, I'm getting married. And I'd hate to think that the world was about to end. I said, oh, don't worry, the universe is 18 billion years old, probably have a little bit more time left. She looked at me and she said, no, I don't think 18 billion. Well, it's a university town. So I said, oh, you're with the 13 billion. I'm the slow learner. And she said, no, she thought it was closer to 7,000 years. And, um, Yeah, because she said that radioactive carbon stuff isn't as accurate as, accurate as they think. But I, I wasn't skillful enough to dodge that one. So I said, what about the astronomical measurements? And as you might gather, um, I, I, had, I couldn't wait for my groceries to be bagged. But the Buddhist Dharma doesn't depend on whether you think the universe is 13 billion or 7,000 years, years old. The recognition of dissatisfaction, you know, we think it's easy to recognize, but we, we don't recognize it often. It's like when, when the, the heater goes off and all of a sudden it's really quiet. But before then, you hadn't noticed that it was on, or when the refrigerator goes off in the kitchen, and you go, "Oh my gosh, it's quiet all of a sudden," and didn't even notice that it was making that noise. Well, there's sort of this ongoing, you know, unease, dissatisfaction. dukkha's sort of hovering around. Uh has that book been down so long? It looks like up to me from the, from the '60s? You know, we just don't notice it so much, even though it's, it's present. Um, but it is. It's, it's, um, the dissatisfaction comes from pleasant and unpleasant experience. You know, every moment uh, has a feeling tone of pleasant or unpleasant. Um, and that can be physical. It can be... Uh, the Buddha says, being with what you don't want to be with or not getting what you want. Uh, this is all uh, dukkha-dukkha. It's a kind of, of dissatisfaction that we're, that we're sort of stuck with because our experience always has a pleasant or unpleasant valence. And even when it's pleasant, well, anicca, impermanence, change. Even when it's pleasant, it's on the way out. <laughs> you know. We can and we can we can pollute even pleasant experience with wishing it would last forever or uh, I remember when I, I must have been about nine or ten and, and getting a, a very fancy dessert at a restaurant. It was this chocolate thing I thought was so good I wanted it to last forever so I was eating such small bites I could hardly taste it. Um, so I thought that would, that would work. Um, but the dissatisfaction that comes from from change. There is nothing that is not susceptible to change. And so even the pleasant is on the way out. The unpleasant is on the way here. Oh, dear. (laughs) Dukkha, dissatisfaction. And then, of course, we, we can make it worse by clinging to ideas about how we think things should be. Ah, they should be this way. They shouldn't be that way. And of course, if things ever got to be perfect, just the way you wanted it. It's downhill from there because of a Nietzsche, <laughs> you know. Um, there's just no chance, but we do. We think it should be this way that, you know, people shouldn't be doing what they're doing out there, whatever it is they're doing that you are imagining. You know, when we have ideas about how things should be, we, we are dissatisfied because they're not that way. And the judgments are um, unending. Judgments are always about some idea we're clinging to about how things should be. You know, when we find ourselves judging this is good, good or bad, it's it's always because we've got an idea about it should be different. This is how it should be, and positive as well as negative. You know, if you if you have a positive judgment, I used to. Paul Newman just looked really cool and, you know, if only, (laughs) you know, so positive judgments, if only I could stand that way. How does he pull out, you know? (laughs) know, So it's even the positive stuff and the negative stuff, both uh, are not helpful because when we cling to that, of course, our experience doesn't, doesn't mirror that. And we wish things were different. That first truth, those seeing deeply into that first truth, the nature of, of dissatisfaction, that's the purpose of that first truth is to be, or our, our intention there should be to understand it, the Buddha said, and to abandon the causes. Um, the, the second truth is the, is the cause, the origin of dukkha is in Um, Well, the the Pali word is tanha, and it's interesting because you know how the, we we all know, but the Eskimos have what, 39 words for snow, something like that? Is it 30? It's a lot of them. And so they actually don't see snow, they see whatever it is, the 39 different things. Well, in Pali, there are somewhere, something more than 25 different words that we render as just desire. So when you translate the second truth is desire, it can be confusing. The Buddha was talking about a specific kind of desire. The desire to turn left at the next block is different from the desire to get some recognition for your good work. You know, there are, and, and so, and then you know, there are, you know, the twenty whatever, different kinds. The word tanha is translated literally as thirst. It's a it, it feels like thirst. It's a, the desire that feels like being thirsty or hungry. You know, we don't feel like we really have any choice in the matter. And our notions are if only X then Ajahn Sumedho tells a story about how when he was four or five and he was at the supermarket with his mom, and they used to dangle the toys right at eye level for a five-year-old. <laughs> I don't think they do that anymore. The candies there. Candies there, yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, the magazines. Oh, well. The Anyway, he, he saw something in a little plastic wrap thing, and he he just wanted it, and he's, he was pleading with his mother to get it for him, and he said, if you get me that toy, I'll never want another toy again.
1: <laughs> and he said, of course,
0: at that time, that's, he thought that was true. <laughs> you know? the, kinds of, the kinds of thirsting, there are three kinds of thirsting that the, that the Buddha identified that lead to this dissatisfaction. The first is, we want things pleasant. You know? Bhikkhu Bodhi says, we spend all of our time trying to make things more pleasant, avoid the unpleasant, and figure out how everything relates to me. So, pleasant experience, and that includes not just, you know, getting the, the, uh, the light right in the room, or the temperature right on the thermostat, it's not just, but it has to do with, um, well, we like our stories to have happy endings, We like our accounts of things to be in accord with the way we think they should be. Our ideas about uh, about things are pleasant and unpleasant as well. But we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to make things pleasant. There's also a desire to become something. The desire to become, which in some ways is really interesting because I think underlying that is the survival impulse, which is not you know, not anything wrong with it if you didn't have that, if we as a species didn't have it built in, if we didn't respond <laughs> to look for threats and danger danger will get your attention, you know. Um, radioactivity in Japan, my gosh, within within a few days, all the potassium iodine, iodide was sold out from all the, because danger gets our attention. We're looking to become something. It's hardwired into us. Nothing wrong with it, but it does lead to dukkha. But it's not just survival. It's we want to become, I don't know, the owner of Alexis, or we want to become... The partner of so and so, or we want to become you know it's becoming something in the future, so we're future oriented, and we think if only this then everything would be fine the other the other uh, the other option is the uh, that thirst to not in the future, which means it's not just the death wish, it's not just Freud's thing, but it's also, uh, somebody, I I heard a Dharma talk years ago where somebody, I don't know whether somebody's done a study or not, said that the most frequently used phrase in all of motion pictures is, we got to get out (laughs) of (laughs) here. We got to get out of here. So it's the desire to get out of the situation that's unpleasant. And these these experiences, are, you know, you're feeling bad, depressed, sad. Got to get out of here. And some people will do. We do all kinds of things um, uh, to try to avoid unpleasant experience. Some people, you know, it's the, the, the resort to drugs and alcohol. To try to blot that out. Some people jump into work or, I mean, there's all kinds of refuges that people will seek to get, to get away from the unpleasant stuff. These are the origins of that dissatisfaction. The Buddha said, there is freedom possible. And the third truth, the truth of cessation, Naroda, sometimes there's confusion about that. The Buddha talked about uh, the third truth is Neroda, not nibbana. Neroda means cessation, or is translated as cessation. And cessation is possible when the conditions uh, for suffering are not present. Now, my understanding, and this is a conceptual understanding, so you can... See how it works for you. But my understanding is that nibbana, which is described as permanent, is the result of is the outcome of having seen fully the Four Noble Truths, see clearly suffering, its origin, its cessation, and the path to its cessation. There's some there's some interesting debate still going on within me and, my, and, and, and others. Uh, I've, I've heard some scholars say that upeka, equanimity, is Nirvana, And then there are some scholars, there are monks, who, with, who disagree very strenuously. And so I have sort of gone back and forth. Currently, my, my thinking is that true equanimity is permanent. Because if it's not, it's not true equanimity. If it's equanimity, dissatisfaction, even dissatisfaction, perfectly at home with it. If there's something that will derail equanimity, then it's not real equanimity, just my take. And then there's, then there's the, the path, which is described as a path to the cessation, but it's also the, the way that someone who has achieved liberation would behave, would understand things as they are, would act in ways that don't enhance uh, dukkha dissatisfaction. And the Dhammapada, the, Buddhas, the, the Buddha says, quite briefly says the, the instructions, the teachings of the Buddhas are avoid evil, practice the good, and cultivate the mind. Evil, in this, in this uh, sense, is, is the translation of the Pali word papa, which means that which takes you into samsara, into suffering. So avoid that. And understanding things the way they are. Anicca, dukkha, and anatta. Well, dukkha is the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. Anicca and anatta, anatta, I, I have to confess, I didn't study Pali in any formal way, so I sort of, it's catch-as-catch-can on pronunciation here. I believe it's anatta. That's pretty much the most obscure of the teachings. Anybody got a great grasp on, on not-self? Ah. And Anicca, we all understand Anicca. Anybody got a clue about Anicca? They're really the same. They're really the same. Just flip side of. So Anicca is translated as impermanence. And Anatta, we don't even know it's translated as not-self. Anybody not heard the word Anatta before? is translated as not-self, sometimes not-soul, sometimes no-self. We don't even know how to translate it, really. But it's it's just a slightly different angle on impermanence. You know, impermanence. If you look at the, you know, the cloud, Call them cloud chambers. Still, they're not. Then, then I think cyclotrons, but they're not cyclotrons. What do they call them? The super colliders, where they, you know, try to create subatomic particles of, and the particles last for trillions of a second. They arise and pass. You know, subatomic particles come and go. They have a life that's trillions of a second. And then there's some things that have life that are a little bit longer. Like fruit flies. <laughs> you know, fruit flies come and go in their life a few weeks, right? And then there's us, and we measure things in terms of our, our um, perspective. And then, of course, there are the galaxies and this 13 billion year old cosmos. Are we <laughs> sort of safe there, give or take? I mean, you know, um, in this universe, everything we know. Arose about thirteen billion years ago, and has a a life a life expectancy we have no idea. Um, and in between, there's there's nothing that's not embedded in any in everything else. Our lives, we think our lives are dependent on the biosphere, right? I mean, take the atmosphere off this planet, we got a couple seconds left. So we're dependent on the biosphere. And of course, the biosphere and and the whole ecology of the planet is dependent on the Earth's relationship to the sun. You know, at some point, um, those people who actually did take second year calculus, <laughs> um, I found you can't cram (laughs) for a calculus exam, so (laughs) that was my style. Um, You know, they say at some point in some billions of years the sun will explode and you know incinerate incinerate the planet. Our our relationship to the to the sun is critical and of course the Sun's place in the galaxy and the galaxy's place in the cosmos we, this is this moment is the cutting edge of the Big Bang right? and so our our dependence here is um, depends on the Big Bang and even even so you know the cosmologists now um, are talking about everything that we perceive out there, the billions and billions of stars and galaxies. It's no more than 4% of everything we know that's there. We just don't even know what the rest of it is. Dark matter, we know it's there, or something's there. We don't even know what it is, but, you know, dark energy. The universe is expanding at an increasing (laughs) rate. I don't, don't have a clue we don't know what's out there you know but everything is constantly in process there really are no things anywhere there's only process everything is changing we can we can you know take a look at something and say it's a it's a chair and we think that it's a thing things occur in language things are nouns that occur in language but they but all that exists is in process. Even the concept chair arises and passes in our mind. We can call it back over and over and over, but you know, it's it's process, it's changing. Some words, some nouns, um, really are abstract. So the, the the word accident, it's an accident. It's a noun, as if it's a thing, but almost every accident that you can think of. Took place over time it was a process. We're using these nouns to point at particular events to try to direct our attention to isolate, and it's our skill as a species to be able to use language and map out our relationship to the to um, our experience and find our way around. Um, even. Even fish do that, you know, the fish in the, where, that live in streams that dry up, they, when they're swimming around, they're paying attention. And then as the, as the streams dry, they know where to go where there'll still be water. We map out, you know, we conceptually map things out. But I guess, you know, the first, the first of the laws of, of semantics is the map is not the territory. Nouns are, in a, in a sense... Um, delusional, because all there is is process. Everything is embedded in everything else. Our lives are embedded in the processes of the rest of the the cosmos. Small things appear, Heraclitus and the Greek philosophers used to say, you can't step into the same river twice. And that was to point at the the constant change, you know. Robert Rauschenberg, who was a uh, an American painter that just died a couple years ago, so last half of the last century, and he used to say, "You can't look at my paintings twice." In that case, he wasn't talking about the fact that there's some molecular change in the color red and. Some, But he's talking about how you are different. The second time you see it, you've already seen it. There's memories. You are, we are changing. We're changing internally. There's change externally. We depend on the ecosystem. We depend on chemistry within ourselves. You know, it's it's just process. And yet we'll slap a name on ourselves and say, that's, you know, or a description and say, that's who I am. So the notion of anatta, which is translated as not-self, or non-self, or no-self, there's no entity there, is what the Buddha's pointing at. And the whole notion of emptiness, which flowed from it, in, and particularly into the, into the teachings of the, uh, the Mahayana, which came after the, the tradition that we're studying in. The notion of emptiness is not that there is this emptiness that exists out of which all things arise and return. It's not, emptiness is not a thing. Emptiness here is the, is the recognition that any noun that you use, you know, any, this, this bell is empty of any inherent entityness. It's not an entity. This is a, to call it a bell, to see it that way is, is to take a snapshot of the, this configuration of, um, atoms and molecules at this particular moment. 50 years ago, this was probably in some mountain somewhere. I'm not really a mining engineer, but I sort of think that's, isn't that how you, get, you go and you dig up the stuff and you process it and then you, isn't that, yeah you know, I, I think. And, and in another unknown amount of time, it will not look like this. These elements will not, will not be there. So there's no entity. It's just that some processes move slower or seem to be moving slower than we are. Some appear to be moving quicker. And to say something is empty just means that there's no essence to it. There's no self, it's often referred to as not self. There's no entity there, it's just process. All things depend on other things, there's nothing separate. If there was something separate, How if there was something permanent, how could you possibly, how would you know? Our sense uh, our sense organs, our mind, constantly everything's changing. How would you recognize something that was permanent? No. So notions of the the ground of being, God, spirit, you know, these things that are permanent and unchanging would not be accessible to us. Sometimes we mistake uh, notions of ultimate reality and conventional reality for notions of ultimate truth and conventional truth. The ultimate truth in terms of anatta, in terms of emptiness, the ultimate truth would be that conventional truth is empty. You know, the ultim- ultimately, all things are anicca. All things are in process. There are no entity- entities present. Everything depends and is embedded in everything else. We are embedded in our culture, our culture in you know, the planet, Actually, you know, when when uh, in the in the uh, many of you, I think have heard the uh, uh, the, little, the line in the Heart Sutra: "Form is emptiness, emptiness is form." You've heard that, okay? And it's it's a puzzlement, but what it means is that emptiness itself is empty. It's not a thing. And it depends on concepts. It depends on form. Something has to be empty if there's nothing. So, form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. They're the same. Emptiness itself is empty. It means that the conditions that give rise to things really, you know, you, you might have heard of heard uh, the liberated state somehow referred to as the unconditioned heard that, the unconditioned. Um, It's not a noun. Actually, in, in the Pali language, there are no articles. So it's not the unconditioned in any case. It's just unconditioned. And in that sense, my understanding of that is that since everything is so deeply embedded in everything else, there really aren't any things to condition any other things, there's just unconditioned experience appearing. It just happens this way. This is just what's happening, and we of course want to make sense of it. So we take, you know, our mind struggling to make, to come up with an account that we can then cling to, believe in, hold on to. That wanting to figure things out. Mm, Thanha, dukkha, you know. and none of this depends on any metaphysics. It just depends on paying attention to your own experience and looking, looking deeply, and noticing how certain kinds of things we do are, cause our are, are suffering and cause us. Suffering make things worse for ourselves. Uh, wishing things weren't the way they were. That doesn't mean that you don't do something. Now, I was talking with someone about this the other night. He says, well, does that mean you don't do anything? Not. You know, if you if we walk out of here and we encounter someone, I don't know, hitting a child, we just stop that. We don't, we don't say hitting, hitting, noting, noting, you know, <laughs> crying, crying. Music. Yeah, yeah, abusing, abusing. Um, it doesn't mean we don't act. But when we act, we act in ways, we act out of, well, skillful intention, intention that doesn't make things worse. We act out of compassion and out of uh, friendliness. out of the Brahma Baharas, we bring metta to to our experience. So it seems to me that often the metaphysics gets in the way and takes our eye off the ball. And we can wind up uh, enmeshed in discussions about whether or not, uh, you know, how many days it takes from one incarnation to the next and, um, you know, whether justice is being served here or whatever. And the Buddha's pointing to just one thing, or maybe it's two things. I can never remember. He says, I only teach one thing, or maybe it's two things. (laughs) Suffering and the end of suffering. And if we keep our eye on that ball, then we won't get distracted by whether the universe is 7,000 years old or billions and billions, because dukkha appears for both of us. The cashier and myself, Mm -hmm. as I was thinking. Um, So understanding anicca, dukkha, and anatta is at the heart of his teaching, and so in the in the uh, in the tradition of the the Catholic Church, I can say, "Go forth and cling no more." Help <laughs> <laughs> me! Let me invite uh, questions or queries because Anatta is not an easy an easy uh, learn. Please. Um, the,
1: that, the notion of karma as sort of reaper, or rebirth, as sort of um, well, sort of this uh, the, the sins of the father type thing, sort mm-hmm. of like you, it lives on in your children and the way they are because of who you were and the things that were unresolved in your life. Do you think that's sort of a, a, a West, totally Western take on it? Do you think that the Buddha had nothing, did not have that in mind at all when he talked about karma?
0: The Buddha was very clear. At, at, uh, he said, in so many words, karma is intention. And what, was, what he was concerned about was your intention the intention behind an action. He distinguished the intention from the fruit of, of, of an action. And yet there was a different word for that, vipaka. All things are conditioned. The notion of sin is has got value and judgment packed in there. Um, so we are conditioned, we, you know, my father was an astronomer. And, you know, so I got science. <laughs> you know, his his mother died uh, when he was 10 because she was a Christian scientist and she wouldn't seek medical help. Well, he certainly didn't like that. So I found myself conditioned by uh, my father's experience. We were all in that boat. We all, you know, we... Um, so we're all conditioned, but the Buddha said that those conditions were not decisive. We have, we have a choice. If we understand the nature of our grasping, we can choose to just let the unpleasant experience arise and pass. And we can enjoy the pleasant when it, when it comes. Um, so he was concerned with karma as intention, because that's what we have to live with. We live with our intention. If our intention is uh, flows from metta, from kindness, uh, and compassion, we will feel different than if it comes from anger. You know, if we see one person oppressing another, we can respond by, with compassion and help for the victim. Or we can respond with anger towards the perpetrator, perpetrators acting out of dukkha as well, but we sort of don't see that quite. So he's got a slightly different idea about karma. We've got, we've got our notions of karma come with all of the new age stuff. so there're people who, you know the sins of the father um, that's our take, I think. One of the, one of the women in my group was, was, when we were talking about emptiness, she said, my gosh, if, if all things, if there is just process, if there is empty, if things are empty, the only thing that matters is our intention. That's what we live with. And when it's angry, We suffer. Please.
1: Yeah, you alluded to it, but um, the choice of how to respond or the intention that may come through with an oppressor. Uh huh. I really like
0: a third option of responding with compassion for the oppressor. Yes. Sometimes you can't make, you can't fix things sometimes, but you can respond by recognizing that uh, that person is also not at peace, that's for sure. And compassion for the oppressor is, is appropriate in, in your own heart. You feel better than if you're about to pop with anger. <laughs> Somebody else, yeah.
1: Um, I had <clears throat> sort of thought about anatta, anatta as the self I take, wh- who I take myself to be, mm-hmm. the self that the constructs that I put around, so that um, kind of a part of dukkha would be the breaking of those constructs. Or living a life that was free of those constructs, but I really like the con- I really like the idea of process. Mm-hmm. I sort of. Ca- I I don't know that I'm putting this together too well, con- conceptually. Um, but I really like that idea, or of intention. Uh uh-huh. It. I don't know if those are just unrelated things that are can kind of. Sort of put into.
0: Intention arises in every moment. You know, we have an intention, a tension arises and passes. Intentions arise and pass. Experience arises and passes. The notions that we have about who we are change. They arise. One moment, we are a parent, the next moment, we're a friend, we're a coworker. We have all these different identities. And they're just labels that we use to help point at certain parts of our experience and make sense of them and to help us navigate. And seems to work pretty well and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just that when we take the map to be the territory, we can, we can create suffering and we can cling to ideas about how things should be. They should be X. Well, <coughs> X is in motion. Everything is in motion. You know, our bodies are not separate from, you know, at this moment, each of us, we're all inhaling air that the others have exhaled this morning. I don't, you know, this is the heavy wind zone. Um, so the molecules that, you know, the particular things that were in one of us are now part of others. We're just totally embedded in our experience. There are no boundaries between us, you know. And so, anatas is just a recognition that the map is not the territory, the labels are empty, the, the things that we think of as solid are not, they're just moving at a different pace. And even within them, you know, the, the atoms in this bell are in constant motion. You know. Please.
1: to the concept of the way that things are, that they
0: can keep them that way for longer than... Keep the things or keep the concept? <laughs> keep the things. Um, I don't think things stay the way they are whether you want them to or not. <laughs> well, I mean... What are you thinking of in particular? Like,
1: like a government
0: or something. <clears throat> ah. Well, interesting, the word government is an abstract noun. You can't put it in a wheelbarrow. You can put a, a box in a wheel. I mean, it's, there's some nouns that are, that are concrete. A watch. It's a, you know, we can point at it. Government is an abstraction. You know, it's, there isn't any entity there. We can point to things that we say are, it's an idea we have, okay. It doesn't function. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of people functioning with the idea of government in their minds. But you can't point at government. It's not the White House. It's not the Capitol. It's not the, the county buildings. It's not the buildings. It's not the people. You actually... I'm sorry? It's a system. But you can't point at the system either. Those are abstractions. And when we think that they're really um, and those abstractions, you know government is different, whatever we think government is, it's different today than it was yesterday because there's some people missing, there are more people there, there's you know whatever. It's not even a permanent thing, it's process, whatever we think it is. But abstract nouns are particularly tricky because we we believe they're. They, they reflect things in the world, and they, um, you know, is government the Congress? It's the whole constellation of all of us, because all of us take part in government. Well, what about the people who don't vote? Well, what about, you know, I mean, Not voting. There's, there's no boundary. You, can, you know, we can define it, but we can't find it. I'm, I'm not sure that that answers your question. We can we can if we all agree on a particular idea, we can sustain that idea for quite some time. Pax Romana, you know, the the the, the Roman Empire lasted for as long as it lasted, and people were able to keep that together for a while. And and we can all agree that. Things should be a certain way, and we can all act in a certain way. Yeah, but even that changes. So, please, Marty.
1: I find this just incredibly freeing. I don't know. I've been. I've been. These concepts have been sort of floating around for a long time, but it's really. The. I mean that teaching about. Uh, that. Uh, the Buddha gave to what it was Bahia, Bahia before yeah. he died. The simpler things are, the more they are just in the present. The the less laden with concepts they are, mm-hmm. and the more they relate to what really is. It doesn't matter what concepts we use to put on the way things are, the, the way things are, are the way they are, That's no matter right. what I think about or the way I define it or anything. So, history has got to be a sh- uh, understandings that are written down from all sorts of different perspectives about the conditioned understandings of a particular time. Mm-hmm. It's tracking our conditioned understandings and the more we lay concept upon concept upon concept, the more confusing everything becomes.
0: And we live, we build a, a world of concepts and we live in it.
1: Right. Rick Hansen uses a wonderful concept of eddies, that everything is eddies. I mean it's that sense of process. It's process. We're an eddy right here. The galaxy is an eddy. There are eddies of, on a very minute scale and on a huge scale.
0: Everything was. I, I mean, it's just the universe is <laughs> the things are the way they are, and when you think that there's something wrong with them, we're projecting our own dissatisfaction onto them. So it's just, you yeah. know. It's, and so
1: that whole thing of acting from compassion, from
0: anyway. Thank you guys for your attention. <laughs>